If you have your Bibles, we do turn to Revelation chapter 3 today. Revelation chapter 3. Revelation is the last book in the New Testament. If you're not familiar with that, just go all the way to the end and then back up to you see the book Revelation. It's pretty easy to get to. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, please uh, invite you to take one of the Bibles in the seat pockets and underneath the seats in front of you. And uh, if you don't have one at home in a translation that you understand, please take that with you as our gift. We want to make sure you have a translation that you understand. It is large print edition, so you don't have to worry about using glasses. And uh, you can read it a little bit more clearly. Uh, but we are in the sixth week of a seven-part series called Overcome, Overcomer, uh, Seven Letters uh, to the Seven Churches in Revelation. And uh, if you've been with us over the last number of weeks, uh, then you know that um, each one of these weeks we're highlighting one of the seven churches that Jesus wrote a letter to through the Apostle John. And uh, it was written by Jesus through John, John the Apostle, who wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and then he penned the book of Revelation. Uh, and that's what we're looking through. And, and this, this has been a really powerful series as I've gone through it because each one of these messages are tailored specifically to each church. And each church uh, has a specific message that Jesus is speaking to them about. Uh, in, in five of the cases, there's a combination of praise and correction. And in two of the cases, it's just praise, uh, where he's just giving them commendations for the things that they've done. But the point of it that I've wanted to encourage you all with each week uh, is that just because these, these letters were written almost 2,000 years ago, um, they are still relevant for us today because at different times in my life and maybe in your life, if you're a follower of Christ, you could have um, an element of your life that looks like one of these churches. Just thinking about the first church we talked about was Ephesus, how when Jesus spoke to the church, he said, you're a servant and you serve God and you're very good at your works. But the problem and the thing I have against you is that you've forsaken your first love. And I use that as an opportunity for me to look internally to myself and say, um, Sometimes ministry can become more about what I do and less about who I know. And God is more interested in me knowing him and being in intimate relationship with him than he is in all the stuff I can do for him. The two always go together because when you love God, God loves you. The response for that is for us to do for God. We respond to God out of the goodness of what he's done for us. But, but those are the kinds of applications that, that I've personally been challenging myself with. At what point in my life have maybe I forsaken my first love? Um, or have I stood underneath the pressure of, of, of persecution or different hardships in my life? Or last week when I talked about the church in Sardis that was dead, or mostly dead in some ways. What areas of my life, though I may have the appearance of life, could be dead spiritually in my heart that God is trying to resurrect to say, you may look like you're alive on the outside, but there's something inside that's dead. So I think each one of these churches, if we're willing to look internally, may be um, appropriate for us to say, have I ever fit one of these types, or am I one of those churches today? Um, today we're going to look at the sixth church in the list, and uh, I'm pleased to tell you that the name of the church is Philadelphia, right? <laughs> now the bad news is it's not the Philadelphia that you think. Um, it is not the Philadelphia down the road, and there was no football team in this city that we're talking about today, uh, but it was, nonetheless, um, the, the, the city of Philadelphia. As I was thinking about how to prepare this, um, I was reminded of a story that I wanted to briefly share with you today. Um, at some point earlier in, uh, in my, my marriage with my wife, uh, either she told me the story or one of her parents told us a story about one of her sisters, uh, who does not go to our church, in case you're wondering, um, when she was younger, she liked to run away from her home. 
And uh, I don't know if you, any, anybody here ever tried to run away from their house when they were little. Any runaways here? You know, I, I was a runaway. Um, I used to threaten to run away, and my mom would then immediately begin to pack my bag. <laughs> she did that many times uh, because she would always call my bluff. Okay, we want to run away. She'll get the bag, and she'll start filling it with stuff. And I'm, no, 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 I don't want to run away. And then I'm like, I'm running away. And she'd get the bag, and she'd fill it. Um, and I never ran away, but I always gave idle threats. Well, well, according to my, either my wife or their family, the one sister actually did threaten to run away, and she would. And she'd put her stuff together and pack her bag, and she'd walk out the door, and she'd go down the driveway, and she would sit on the edge of the property line and just sit there. And they'd say, well, why are you sitting there? And she's like, because I'm not allowed to leave the property. So she ran away. And I was thinking about that in relationship to this message today regarding the city of Philadelphia. Um, because the city of Philadelphia and that story have something in common. The city of Philadelphia was one of the two cities that was praised by Jesus for not just their good deeds, but for their willingness to obey. In fact, they recognized something that in that story also made sense. We may have an opinion. We may have a desire. We may personally want to accomplish something or have our own version of how something should look, but just like my sister-in-law in that place, the law of the family and the parents, the rules of the parents, usurped their own preferences. So she wanted to leave and she wanted to move away, but she wouldn't leave the property because she knew ultimately she should obey her father. And that's what the city of Philadelphia experienced. As they looked at the world around them, as they looked at the city that they were in, the believers of the city they recognized that there were some things in that city that may not have been ideal, and they had to make a choice. Are they going to bow to the things that were not in accordance to what God asked them to do or the way God asked them to live, or would they learn to stand and obey the word and the teaching of God? What I want you to hear this morning, and it's so important for us to understand, is uh, the city of Philadelphia understood this in this one specific thing. They understood that obedience is the pathway to God's blessing. And that's so appropriate for us today as well, because when we want to be blessed by God, we need to recognize that true blessing only comes when we obey God's plan, God's principles, God's teaching, God's word. It is the only thing that brings blessing. And so obedience is the pathway to God's blessing. So I want to talk a little bit about how the church in Philadelphia did this. But before I do that, I want to give you a little bit of background as to the church of Philadelphia and why that city was significant. Um, first off, about Philadelphia, it was a fertile city. Okay, and what I mean by that is they didn't have a lot of babies. I meant that it was an agricultural uh, city where it had a lot of strong agricultural roots because it was located in an area that was known for its volcanic activity. So the soil was very rich in nutrients. And the city of Philadelphia was then fertile. In fact, they were world famous for their grapes and their wine. So if you wanted great grapes and great wine, you would go to Philadelphia as one of the places to go. They were also well known for their healing hot springs. You see, they had water in the region that was hot because of the volcanic activity, and people would travel to this city. So if you were a traveler, you would come and visit, maybe because of the wonderful uh, world-famous grapes or wine that was available, and you could also stop on your way in and you could get a nice spa treatment and a healing hot spring. 
Uh, and that's the truth. And they would do that. And they had a lot of um, a lot of commerce because of those kinds of things. And travelers would come and enjoy the things of Philadelphia. So it was a fertile city, and they were an agricultural city. Uh, they were also a missionary city. And what I mean by that is not spiritually missionary, but Philadelphia was actually uh, planted and built in a location that was the doorway to the, to the regions of the east, to the civilizations of the east. And the goal of that city was to be a place where they would influence the Greek language and the Greek civilization so that it would spread to other regions of the world. So Philadelphia was one of those places that adapted and fully embraced the Greek culture and became, in one case, they actually referred to it at one point as the Little Athens because they took all of the Greek culture and they replicated it in Philadelphia and then they used that as a springboard to go out to other regions like Lydia and Phrygia and people learn the Greek language and they learn the Greek culture. So in a way, they were a missionary for the Greek culture. Make sense? So that's important to know as well. The third thing is important to know is that they were an unstable city, okay? And why I'm saying that is because they were next to heavily volcanic, a heavily active volcanic region. And as a result of that, they would experience frequent earthquakes in the area of Philadelphia. So not only were they fertile and agriculturally strong, not only were they a missionary city, they were an unstable city. They had many earthquakes over the time um, that they lived there. And there's record over and over again of them experiencing smaller and larger earthquakes. One of the largest earthquakes that hit the area of Philadelphia um, was in 17 AD, and it actually destroyed the entire city and 10 surrounding cities because the earthquake was so, uh, so strong. The earthquakes were so common that many times people would live a little farther out from the city in more of a tent kind of a setup because of the stones and the buildings, and they would be afraid that when an earthquake would come, they would die as a result of the buildings collapsing. So they would stay a little further out from the city. Um, so it, you get an idea of what's going on in the city. Um, there was also a very large Jewish population in the city of Philadelphia. Um, as uh, as, the, the, organ, as the, um, the message kept spreading and as the, the Roman Empire kept spreading, Jews were just dispersing into different areas, and they actually planted and established a synagogue in Philadelphia. And then, of course, like I said earlier, there was a small Christian church of followers of Jesus Christ in the city of Philadelphia. That's what we're going to focus on this morning, and they understood that obedience is the pathway to God's blessing. They were a small church planted in a city that was focused on Greek teaching, Greek mythology, Greek culture, surrounded by Jews as well, Jewish people, and they still professed and held fast to the teachings of Jesus Christ. So this morning what I want to do is I want to unpack this, this comment about obedience as the pathway to God's blessing and really try to understand what obedience is. Because obedience can mean a different thing to different people. Maybe you've heard the word obedience and you think it's just blind you know, following. You know, obedience is just do whatever you're told to do. Well, there's a couple pieces to that that I want to talk about briefly. But I think this is important for us to understand. In this world that we live in today, this message is very applicable. Because everyone has a message that they want you to hear. Everyone in this culture has a truth that they want you to embrace. And we're going to obey someone. We're either going to obey our thoughts, we're going to obey someone near us, we're going to obey the news, we're going to obey um, the culture, we're going to obey our, our, our political leaders. We're going to follow and obey someone. And what Philadelphia understood in the church was that obedience to God was the pathway to true godly blessing. 
So what does it look like? Well, we're going to begin looking at Revelation chapter 3, and I'm going to walk through some of the verses, and then I'd like to talk to you a little bit about it briefly. Um, so let's look at verse 7, beginning in Revelation 3. And it says this, To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. So if I could kind of rewrite this a little bit, it would almost be like Jesus was writing to Philadelphia and he said, Dear Philadelphia, I am unique, Jesus. I am set apart. And when he says he's true, he's saying he's faithful. Faithful and true are synonymous. I have full access to the kingdom of heaven and I also have full authority because he can open any door, he can close any door, and whatever his plan is cannot be changed by anyone. So he's writing a letter to the church in Philadelphia and this is what he was saying. Jesus is saying, The one that you serve is in charge of everything. The one that you serve has full authority over everything. He is uniquely set apart. That's what holy means. He's set apart, unlike like, like no other. And he is true, which means he is faithful to this struggling church. The church was continually um, reminded and surrounded by different things trying to get them to believe other things than what Jesus was teaching. And yet they were faithful and obedient to his word and his following. Or his teaching. So he's telling them, I am faithful to you. I am in charge and my plans can't be thwarted. And then he goes to verse number eight and he says, I know your deeds. Deeds are synonymous with works. I see what you do. And he says, see, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. An open door no one can shut. That's kind of referring to two different things, we believe. The open door could be, one, the evangelical or evangelistic opportunity for them to share Christ with those around them, the open door to be able to do that. Uh, Or it could also have been the opportunity in the same way the city was being missional and reaching other cultures with the Greek teaching that they could have gone as well and they could have brought Christ to other nations. It's twofold. Um, But here's what's actually really cool about that. The opportunity, uh, which is really powerful, is that remember they were commonly known and world famous for their grapes and their wine. Well, about four or five years before this letter was written, the emperor or the Caesar of Rome made a declaration across the entire, uh, uh, the whole Roman Empire that all of the vineyards around the entire empire should be burned by half to make room for corn and other crops because there was a famine around the entire uh, uh, empire. Now, interestingly enough, he didn't do that in Rome, um, only in the other areas because Rome then ironically, seem to have the best wine and the best grapes above everybody else. But what he said to Philadelphia was, cut half of your volume and in half and destroy all of it. And by doing so, it crippled their economy. So they felt great betrayal in that actual declaration. So what he's saying here is he's saying, I've got an open door that no one can shut. When people experience struggle, when I experience difficulty, and actually this is the way human nature really is, we are our most open to hear the things of God when we are in our lowest place. Is that right? When do people usually come to Jesus? When do people usually make a a decision to follow Christ? Not when everything is wonderful usually in their lives. It can happen, but usually God has to strip away or allow things to be stripped away from us so that we come to a place where we have nothing that we can accomplish in our own strength and we need an answer that's outside of ourselves. So an open door could very easily be him saying, you have a whole group of people around you that have lost most of their ability to be economically wealthy and to live. 
And they're going to wonder what the answer is to this. And you have an open door to share the gospel with these people. Also, like I said, it could be them going to other countries and sharing the gospel as well. But really powerful in that. And then he says to them, he says, I know that you have a little strength. Little strength doesn't mean that they were weak. It just means they were small. They were a little church. He said, but you have kept my word and have not denied my name. And that's where the two key things that I want to focus on are actually uh, found. That he kept that they kept his word and they did not deny his name. What does godly obedience look like? Two things I want to mention this morning briefly. Number one, the church of Philadelphia was keeping the word of God. If you want to be godly in your obedience to God, if you want godly obedience, it looks like keeping his word. Keeping his word is synonymous with not conforming your life to anything other than God's truth. There is no alternative we see in scripture to following God that brings true blessing. The only thing that brings godly blessing is to obey what God has in his word and in his truth. Now, why did the church of Philadelphia do this? Because it's easy for us to hear, here's what we need to do. But why did they do this? And I want to tell this, and I'm going to share this throughout the rest of the message today. They did it because they knew God was good. They didn't just do it because the word of God says so. They experienced the goodness of God. And when you experience the goodness of God, you want to keep his word. When you experience God's transformational power, you want to obey and follow his word. In the world that we live in, there's lots of versions of truth. Truth is not equal across all areas. Scripture is full of references that remind us of meditating on God's word. And we need to digest it and plant it deep in our hearts So that by keeping his word and not conforming to an alternative view of God's word, we can experience God's blessing. Because in this word, there is truth. And in this world, there is counterfeit. Now, when I was young, I used to go to an arcade, a drugstore that had video games. And I might have shared this, a little bit of the story to people in different ways. But here's a little twist on it. Um, You know those change machines that you put dollar bills in to get quarters? Especially when you were a kid. Um, Well, I wondered if it would be possible for me to make my own money. So as a kid, don't laugh. Some of you may have done it too. (laughs) I, I took paper and I cut it out the same size and I... I didn't try to photocopy it or anything like that. I wasn't that sophisticated. I just, as a young kid, I was maybe like 10 or 11 years old, drew my version of a dollar bill on both sides. But even at 9 or 10 years old, I was finding ways to beat the system. And I was trying to figure this out, and I would, and, and, uh, and I would put it in the machine to see if it would work. And ironically, like it never, and I was disappointed. It never worked. Do you believe that? Like it didn't recognize my dollar bill, but it recognized real dollar bills. And I was always disappointed in that. I'm like, man, I need to go back. So I'd try and I'd do it again. And here's what I'm looking and why I'm saying that. One, not because, you know, I, I, I'm dishonest, um, at least not today, um, but <laughs> the machine was programmed to know exactly what truth looked like. When you would put that dollar bill in the machine, what would it do? It scans the front, it scans the back, and it knows exactly what to look for to determine that what it's receiving is true and authentic. And when I would put my homemade dollar bill in that machine, it would spit it right back out. You know why? Because it knew the difference between truth and fake. It knew the difference between truth and counterfeit. And this is so important for us today because if we don't have the word of God birthed in our heart, planted in our mind, then we don't know what truth really looks like. And there are things that people can tell us are truth that we can be led astray and deceived. And instead of making decisions that are honest to God, And I don't mean honest to God like a prayer. I mean honest before God. 
We make decisions thinking we're doing the right thing, but we actually are not. So we need to know what truth looks like by taking the word of God and standing on truth. This needs to be our filter that we live life through. Now, I'm sharing this with you because, you know, maybe you've been to Bridge before and you've heard me talk about this, but I say it over and over again for my own life and for for other people as well. Consistently, this is the pattern of what I have felt in my own life or experienced and I've seen experienced in other people's lives. When difficult things come people's way or they're going through a hard time or a struggle, or they're not quite sure about something and they they need prayer or they're wrestling or maybe they're discouraged. Fill in the blank. We all go through hard times in our lives, don't we? The reality of that is we have to ask ourselves what we believe. And usually when people want to meet with us or talk with us about prayer uh, or can we pray for them, I always want to ask them the question, what does their time with the Lord look like? Are they in scripture? Are they filling their minds with the things of the word? Are they transforming their mind by conforming to the word of God? And can I tell you, most of the time, people will say that they're really not spending much time in the Word of God. It's not 100% true, but there is a lot of truth to it. That many times, and I'll look at my own life, that there are times where I just feel more drained or more lack of energy, that there are things that I'm wrestling with in my life, that my mind is going down paths that God never intended it for it to go, and I need the Word of God to realign me to truth. You understand what I'm saying? This is so important for us to understand. It is important for us to keep the word of God, just like the church in Philadelphia. They were obedient. God saw their obedience because they knew what truth looked like and they were willing to stand. Now, this is what's so important about this. It's impossible for us to stand on our own strength. It's impossible for you and I to stand on on our own strength. I might be standing here on my two feet, but I am on a platform a few steps above the rest of the room. I can never get to this height again on my own strength. I need something under me to lift me up. And that's why it's so important for us to know that Philadelphia and the Church of Philadelphia may have stood on the word of God because their strength came from God, didn't come from themselves. So I'm not just advocating that we as Christians know what it says here and then our own strength, just, you know, kind of pioneer and cheer on, you know, what's truth and try to do that on our own strength. No, we need to know that the word of God also doesn't just tell us what's right and what's wrong. The word of God also teaches us where our strength needs to come from. And Jesus said at Beth's in John 15 when he said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And in a context like Philadelphia, that had grapes as their primary source of income, they would have understood the vine and the branches teaching very well because the vine is the source of life. The branches get life from the vine. So keeping his word is very important. And in this culture that we live in today, we need to be willing to take the word of God and devour it and plant it in our lives. I can tell you right now, if you have not experienced this, you're going to see more and more people in our culture and our world are looking to unrightly divide the word of God. Or they're looking to pull scriptures and things to twist teachings that scriptures say when really scripture never means that at all. We have to know that we know that we know. This morning we have our first of four-week class about how to read and study the Bible. We need, and I still believe it in my heart of heart, everyone who's a follower of Christ or a believer should go through an intentional time of Bible training or teaching or classes to understand not just how to pull scriptures out of this word, but to see how they all come together so that we can live and we can grow in accordance to God's plan for our lives. 
So keeping his word is important. That's an example of what godly obedience looks like. The second piece of that is found in the second part of that scripture. It's not just keeping his word, but it says also that they have not denied my name. Another way of saying that is that they were refusing to disown Jesus. What does godly obedience look like? Refusing to disown Jesus. So what did the church of Philadelphia do? They kept the word of God and they refused to disown Jesus. Now, the church in Philadelphia had a share of problems, and I want to briefly explain why this is so significant to them. Because their faith in Christ wasn't just something that they lived on a Sunday morning. Their faith actually impacted their entire livelihood. Remember how I said earlier that there were a lot of Jews that lived in the city of Philadelphia? Well, you know, when Christianity first started, it actually wasn't considered separate from Judaism. It was actually a sect of Judaism. And they would still go together, and those that were Jews that became followers of Christ would still go to the synagogue and worship with other Jews. But as they continued to preach about Jesus and talk about Jesus as a Messiah and not just a prophet, they began to part separate ways. And as this continued to happen, the Jews in those cities cast out their fellow brothers and sisters from the synagogue because they were teaching something they didn't agree with anymore. This is why this is so important. In that culture, choosing to follow Jesus didn't just cast you out of a Sunday morning service, or I should say a Sabbath in that case, which was a Saturday service. What it did was separate you from family, from friends, from your network of people that you shared life with. Your economic situation would be held in jeopardy or in question. And if I can take it to another level, which is really significant, in the early steps or stages of the Roman Empire, Jews were exempt from having to declare Caesar as Lord. And the way that the Romans knew who could be exempted from that and who weren't were those who were on the books of the Jewish synagogues, the names of the people on the Jewish synagogues. So by declaring Jesus as Lord and making that declaration to not disown his name, your name is stricken from the synagogue books. Which means if the Romans wanted to enforce this, this is incredibly important. If the Romans wanted to enforce it, your name is no longer listed as someone that isn't permit or isn't um, required to declare Caesar as Lord. Your economic situation is in question. You risk persecution, harassment, jail, or even maybe your life was at risk. So this is a really big deal. And they refused to disown Jesus in the midst of difficult things. Now, we don't live in a world today uh, where we have those kinds of struggles, but we understand that there are struggles and there is a cost to following Christ. But refusing to disown the name of Jesus is an important thing for us to understand. We need to recognize that that is actually a big deal. Today, why do we walk away from the name of Christ sometimes? Maybe your livelihood's not at risk in the United States of America for choosing to be a follower of Christ. And that might not apply to us today. But you know, there are things that we experience like hardships. How many times have you known someone that has experienced a difficult thing or a sadness, a tragedy, something in their life? And and in the process of experiencing that tragedy, instead of running to God, they run from God. Instead of embracing the goodness of God, they declare God not good. People have experienced experienced abuse. People have experienced unanswered prayers. I prayed and I prayed and I prayed and God didn't answer me. Therefore, 
I will not follow him. And really what they're doing is they're refusing the name of Jesus because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, that Jesus is our strength. Jesus is our provider. He is the one who gives us the pathway to life. And instead of running to God, we can run from God. And it's a dangerous thing for us to practice, but the Philadelphian church understood it and they walked in obedience to God. So what does God say to this church who chooses to walk in obedience and not draw the line uh, by embracing counterfeit truth, but to really walk with truth and to uphold the name of Christ? Look at what he says, uh, when God's, what God says to the church in verse 9. He says, I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan... Okay, I'm talking about those Jews that are in the... the, I love the way that he writes this. Um, I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. What is he saying to these believers? He's saying, when you choose to uphold the name of Christ, know this, I haven't forgotten you. Know this, I will prove my love to you, to everyone else. I will show you how much I love you, how much there's nothing that anyone can do to you that's going to stop me from loving you. It's really powerful what he's saying because they're doing this as a great expense. And the letter that he's saying to these people is, hold fast, stand, recognize that I am going to come through for you. Why does God come through for us? Because he is good. Remember, it's not just about obedience. It's about looking with our eyes at the fact that God is always good. God is always faithful. God always has a plan, and we can trust him in the midst of adversity. In verse 10, look what he says. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world and to test those who are on the earth. And what he's talking about here in that time is endurance, meaning the power to withstand hardship or stress, especially inward stress, Inward strength and resolve. So the endurance he's talking about is not we're doing it in our own strength. The power to endure is them digging in to the things of Christ and not of themselves. And this is the reward that he gives them for those that are willing to stand in the midst of opposition and hard things. What else does godly obedience look like this morning? The last thing I want to mention is holding on to your faith in Christ. Holding on to your faith in Christ. In Christ is the last thing I want to mention today. He calls the church to persevere just like he calls us to persevere. He calls you and I to walk faithfully just like he calls the church of, Philippi, of, of, um, of Philadelphia to persevere. And if we're not careful in the world that we live in, godly obedience isn't going to look like godly obedience. We're supposed to hold on to our faith because he's coming soon. Verse 11 says, I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. We're going to close in just a few minutes. I'm going to ask if the worship team can come as we prepare to close in a few moments. But I want to ask you, if you are a follower of Christ and you've heard this message this morning, are you persevering? Are you keeping the word? Are you upholding the name of Christ? Are you looking at your circumstances today? Or are you looking at your circumstances today and using them as reasons why God is no longer worth following? Reasons why God may not be as good as you think that he is. Can I just tell you this morning, the bottom of my heart, being honest about this, 
It is when we get our eyes off of the goodness of God that we allow the world around us to discredit his love, to nullify his power. We need to keep our eyes on the goodness of God. We need to keep our hearts focused on the love of God, on the grace of God. And when we keep our eyes focused on those things, nothing can affect us. We always pray that God would quiet the storms around us, but when we focus on the goodness of God, he can quiet our hearts in the midst of the storms. And then it doesn't matter what we walk through, we can still walk in peace and confidence because he is good and he always has been. So this morning I ask you, what type of circumstances are you walking through? We don't live in the time where the church of Philadelphia lived. We're not at risk of losing our lives or our livelihood or prison by declaring that Jesus is Lord in our lives. We don't do that in this country, right? We still live in a country right now where it's okay for us to declare that. But if you're taking a moment and you're asking the Holy Spirit to speak to your heart, has anything come into your life that's caused you to take a step away and deny the goodness of God? deny the authority and the truth of Jesus Christ, the love of Christ. Has something not gone well for you? And you're thinking about that right now and you're saying, you know, there was a lot of pain in that situation. And maybe you took your eyes off the goodness of God and in the midst of that, in the midst of that, you didn't stand. God is calling us to stand. Are you going through a suffering or a tragedy this morning? Are you going through a difficulty today? And listen, it doesn't matter what you're doing versus someone else. It's so important for us to know your struggle, your suffering, your whatever you're going through is your thing. It's not better or worse than anybody else. It's just yours. But let's not think for a moment that just because yours may not look like someone else's, that it's not as important to God. It's always important to God. We need to remember that in the midst of what we go through, God is always good. And he'll bring us through hard times and he'll bring us through unknowns. He will bring you through things that you thought maybe you knew the answer to, but you didn't. Disappointments, struggles, unanswered questions. You ever have unanswered questions in this world? Man, unanswered questions. God, I don't get it. But can I tell you, the way that we endure and the way that we stand is to keep our eyes focused on the goodness of God. Some of you know, a number of months ago, a few months ago, we had the privilege in our home to bring a a new puppy into our house. And I very tentative to share this story because it's still very sensitive to us and to my family and I, but I really believe that the Lord put it on my heart to share it. And I want you to know that my story is just my story. It may not stir you or move you, but something in your heart will stir you. But over Labor Day weekend in September, we had the opportunity to go pick up a new puppy. And, uh, oh, that's a fun time in our life. Isn't it fun to do that? And, you know, you get to hold them and they smell like puppies and, you know, and they they bite your fingers and they cuddle up in your lap and 
my one daughter and I, youngest daughter, went up to New York and picked him up and uh, drove him home four hours, and he slept in his lap, her lap the entire time. It was beautiful. And we were so excited, because any of you that know our family know that um, there was a, another little guy that was going to be in our house, and he was going to be able to get to know our old boy. We had a 12-and-a-half-year-old golden retriever. His name was Rascal. And, um, he... He was kind of a dog snob, we would say. Like, he loved people, but he didn't love dogs. Um, but we thought, oh, they're going to connect, and they're going to make relationship, and it would be fun. And, you know, he's, he, let's see how this goes. And we came home that Monday, and, you know, he, in typical fashion, our dog came out and greeted us and saw the puppy and was like, whatever, and then went inside. And that's what he always did when it came to other dogs. He didn't care about them. Uh, but we were excited to see what was going to happen over the next number of weeks and months. And the next morning... He started experiencing physical symptoms beyond what he previously had as he was older. And he was having trouble getting up. And he was having trouble walking. The very next day, we brought this puppy home. After we brought the puppy home. And then we began to watch over the course of a few days and into the rest of that week how his health was declining. And there were times through that week that I had to pick him up to get him up, to bring him outside. And he had trouble standing on his own. He had trouble going outside. And he had trouble just existing. There were some days we would look at him and he would be glassy-eyed or he would just lay there all day. And, and we didn't know what was going on. So the following week, we called the vet and uh, my wife brought our new puppy. His name was Charlie. We brought him to the vet. And uh, about an hour and a half after that, I had to bring our older dog in for an appointment. And he wouldn't get up. And I couldn't get him up by himself. He wouldn't get up. He just stared at me and he wouldn't get up. So I had to pick him up. And he's 80 pounds. And he's big. You know what it's like? You know what's going to happen, but you don't want to go there. You ever been there? Oh, you know what's going to happen, but you don't want to go. I looked at him and I looked at him and I said you better not die on me (sighs) put him in the van and he couldn't get out of the van he could barely walk over to the side of the building had trouble going to the bathroom brought him inside we thought just tell us what's wrong with him and what we found out was that he was suffering from something called pericardial effusion, which was fluid between his heart and his pericardium. It's a sac around his heart. It was filling with liquid. There was a lot of liquid. It was keeping his heart from fully beating. And as a result of that, he was exhausted because the heart couldn't fully pump blood throughout his body. And he was getting more and more tired and he couldn't function. So they they were going to do this procedure to remove the fluid, but they told us, they said, there's a good chance that it's probably cancer to do some tests so we agreed to do that my wife came back with our one daughter and we spent a few minutes with him and then they went back to do the tests and we went home and I wasn't home for not even two minutes I pulled into the driveway and the vet called and said we did preliminary tests and he has nodules all through his lungs and he has cancer all in his lungs and we did blood work and the blood work's indicating back that he has cancer in his body and he said if we do this procedure one we know it doesn't fix him because doing the procedure was just a temporary thing and you can't fix the problem. But they said, if we do this, there's, there's just more problems you're going to have and 
and he's failing very fast right now. So they said, we don't know what you want to do. So I'm sitting there and I'm trying to make this decision. Are we going to euthanize our pet of 12 and a half years when we didn't realize that's what was going to happen? So we all get back in the car and he says, come back as soon as you can because I don't know if he's going to make it before you get back. And we go in the back and we're making a decision that he needs to be put down. And we went in this room and it's like a roller coaster of emotions. Anyone that's ever experienced this knows what I'm talking about. It's like, you know it's the right thing, but you know it's the hardest thing in the world that you're going to have to do. And we're sitting there, we're holding him and we're petting him and he's laying on the table. He tries to get up and we have to lay him down again. Long story short, I give him a sedative and then he falls asleep. There's so much pain in that room. So much sadness in that room. Can I tell you, the whole time we're in that room, there's a song going through my head. And the song is, all my life you've been faithful. All my life you've been so, so good. With every breath that I am able, I will sing of the goodness of God. And the presence of God was so strong in a room where three of us had to say goodbye to a loved one. And you know, can I tell you, you may not have that experience. And maybe for you, an animal's an animal. But can I tell you, all of us experience pain. All of us experience grief. All of us experience sadness. And when our hearts are wounded and we feel The struggle is real. We have a choice to make in that moment. Are we going to run to God or are we going to run from God? Are we going to be upset? Are we going to be angry at God? I mean, your situation is your situation. But the irony, I told my wife over and over again, we didn't have him for a day. And he started to die. All the dreams and the ideas you have of what it's going to look like, when life falls apart like that, what do you do? sing of the goodness of God. Amen. I'll sing of the goodness of God. Can I tell you, whatever you're going through this morning, my friends, whatever you're struggling with today, don't let it keep you from experiencing the goodness of God. Stand strong this morning because he is faithful. He is good. Amen. He is powerful. His love for you is greater than anything that you ever could hope for, imagine, or, or dream. We all experience loss. We all experience struggle. And we just don't understand sometimes. And your story is your story. And my story is my story. But God's story is us. You hear what I'm saying? God's story is us. So take your brokenness, take your pain, take your heartache, and just say, Lord, all my life you've been faithful. All my life, you've been so, so good. With every breath I am able, I will sing of the goodness of God. Would you stand with me, please? As the team sings this song this morning, I want to ask you, spend time with the Lord and ask him this question. Let him speak to your heart so that you can make this declaration and stand, not on your own strength, but persevere in the power of God.